3: The Streams of Winter. Livestream 19. Aegon the sixth.
1: Hello and welcome to the Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks to you all for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. Some of you are tuning in from Joe Magician's regular 2 o'clock stream slot on the Joe Magician YouTube channel. Hello to all of you, and we're glad we can continue the entertainment. Today we'll be talking about a character who's definitely going to play a large role in The Winds of Winter, and a related theory that's been at the heart of fandom discussions for years. It's Aegon VI and the Fire Conspiracy, everyone. In A Dance with Dragons, Aegon poses as young Griff as he and his band of unlikely companions make their way across Essos before pivoting for a full-scale invasion of Westeros. Is Varys and Illyrio's perfect prince really that perfect? And is he really Aegon Targaryen, or in fact, a descendant of House Blackfire? These are huge questions. And so to help me answer, here's the other half of Radio Estros Lady Gwyn.
3: Hello. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Glad to be back. Uh, we have a huge episode today. It's not just huge questions, but we have huge answers. So we are very happy to welcome back for this effort our friend uh, Brendan B. Fish from Nauticast. We have not worked with you for quite a while, Jeff. So uh, thank you and welcome back to Radio Westeros.
2: It's been a minute and I think the last time we worked together like on Radio Westeros proper was about Young Griff, if I remember correctly.
3: I'm pretty sure it was. And that's go. Yeah, I was going back some.
2: That's going away. That's like 2016, 17, maybe, I want to say. You know, I was a young man. I mean, I'm still a young man. But back then, I was even younger. We even were all younger. The... <laughs> right? God.
3: But you're keeping busy these days. So we're... Uh... So,
2: uh, you know, just a little bit here and there, you know, doing an occasional podcast episode, uh, you know, enjoying, you know, watching my family grow up and get big and strong. And uh, But yes, yeah, so, yes, thank you. It's, it's. I'm so pleased to have you guys back. And I know... Uh, you know jen you were lady gwyn you were you were here with us for for catlin's second chapter in the clash of kings which was a a, an utter blast to do that with uh with y'all and um you know it's it's one i actually go back and listen to fairly regularly because uh, there's so much to pull out of it also because it was almost three hours in length which is you know just just a tad long just just a little bit just a little bit long but still uh just just a little bit, but it's still like really, uh, really awesome to, to have that uh, in, in memory and to go back and listen to that. And uh, Yolk Boy, eventually we're going to have to get your uh, Americanized, r- rapidly Americanizing voice onto the Nauticast podcast where I uh, co-host again with uh, Emmett Booth, a.k.a. Po- Poor Quentin. Uh, every single week going chapter by chapter through A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, we're just about close to the end of A Clash of Kings, which is uh, very exciting. We just got through the Blackwater. We just got through Theon's final chapter, which is a very happy chapter introduces this really fun boy by the name of ramsey i don't know if you've heard of him or not <laughs> yeah no yeah so it's 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 all sorts of fun fun stuff there and again our, our next live stream which we'll be doing on monday is going to be a uh sloshed review of the recent uh snyder cut for uh, for justice league so that should be uh all oh, sorts I'll of um, a little bit nice. appropriate fun for everyone the whole family don't don't bring your family please don't no, bring your family. don't <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Excellent. I'd love to join you for some the Storm of Swords action yes. and come and return the favor and beyond. So we can talk about that later. But yeah, sign me up. Okay, guys, why don't we get going with the discussion today? I want to start with... I thought we could do some groundwork by talking about Aegon's character before we get into the sort of theorizing. So at uh, the tail End of Robert's Rebellion, King's Landing was sacked and one of the grimmest moments in recent history occurred. Lannister man-mountain Gregor Clegane entered the nursery at the Red Keep and killed royal baby Aegon Targaryen by dashing his head against a wall before savaging the baby's mother Elion Martell. So, guys, what can be said about this absolutely horrific event, and what mark did it leave upon the current story? Lady Gwyn? Hello. Who are you
3: talking
2: to? <laughs> I'm talking to my friends.
3: <laughs> Hello there. <laughs> it's it's a hi? baby. It's a baby beefish. <laughs> okay?
2: Yeah, and no, the other, other podcasters, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, got to do some stuff. I love you. I'll be up to read to you later. <laughs>
3: Special guest appearance there. So I uh, I will say about Aegon that I do not think it's an exaggeration to say that the uh, the deaths of Elia and her children, really cast a very long shadow, indeed, over the main narrative. I mean, you have numerous characters who think about it, and of course, the impact of those deaths on primary, secondary, and even tertiary characters is extremely far-reaching. Ned and Robert quarreled over it, and uh, Robert's willingness to uh, look the other way almost certainly defined the manner in which Ned raised Jon Snow. Uh, which then had a spillover effect on his own wife and children. And then, of course, you had Daenerys, who lost family and moved up the line of succession. Aegon's and Rhaenys' deaths certainly are what allows her to make a claim to the Iron Throne. You got the entire Dornish storyline, which is defined by vengeance for Elia and her children, Uh, on a very basic level, without those murders. Oberyn and Quentin are still alive, And it spirals out from there. Of course, you know, Robert's throne would be much less secure. And perhaps he has to marry his own son and daughter to Elia's children to secure the claim. Or, I mean, who knows what, right? It would be a totally different story. The possibilities grow so outlandish that we really have to conclude that uh, we just would not have these books without those three deaths that occurred 15 years before the story started.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, my hope is not to be totally insensitive, but I first want to talk about like how the murder of Aegon the Six or Aegon, the son of Rhaegar, by Gregor Clegane, in the con- is framed in the context of how George writes *A Song of Ice and Fire*, especially his Gardner style of writing. I mean, there's been some great fan debate about whether George intended for s- someone to be posing as Rhaegar's son from the get-go, uh, eventually to show up in in the storylines of various characters with some like elio garcia jr saying no and adam wordhead adam wordhead from uh me, wordhead adam whitehead from Word zone saying uh yes that was always in the cards i for me i i'm not exactly sure although i tend and i see value in both perspectives but i tend to lean so ever so slightly towards uh, elio's perspective insofar as the Mummers dragon uh an ambiguous reference to john connington as an exiled hand of the king who died in exile from an early Tyrion chapter in a clash of kings and Danny thinking about whether Rhaegar preferred his son Aegon as the prince that was promised. Those all occur within the context of a Clash of Kings. We don't see that in a Game of Thrones. Then in Storm, we start to see references to, to the Blackfires. And why is that significant? Because I think George, at that point, we know this actually from things I'll, I'll explain later on. We know that George ended up deciding like an, on an outline for the story at that point between Clash and uh, A Storm of Swords when he realized that the story was kind of getting a, away from himself. So I I think like, you know, you can obviously the event is horrific and terrible, but I think the meta is important for understanding how A Song of Ice and Fire came into be, at least the published version that we see so far and might lead to further revelations down the road. Like in, in the story itself, we get we get three essential versions of what happened with with Ned providing us the story about Gregor and Kevin Lannister also showing us what happened when the body was brought to to baby Aegon's Agon, baby body was brought before the Iron Throne. And then we get you know young Griff saying, you know, that was not me. That was some Tanner's son from Pisswater Bend whose mother died birthing him. His father sold him to Lord Varas for a, for a jug of arbor gold. He had other sons, but I never tasted arbor gold. Varas gave the Pisswater Prince to my lady mother and carried me away. And And I think it's interesting because it the, the death of, of Baby Aegon means three separate things to, to those three individuals. For Ned, it's about the Lannisters and how awful that they are and how you're not supposed to trust them. Uh, and it also is was a major separation point between him and Robert at the end of Robert's rebellion. It almost you know caused them to separate permanently until and not even John Aaron could, could quell the uh, the tumult between the the two. And for Kevin, it's kind of like he as Kevin is a, is a jerk and I don't like him, he rationalizes as basically being the price of the iron throne. And then for young Griff, it's it's kind of like him just passing along information to to the reader of what he understands. It's, it seems like this is a story he was told all growing up, and so that tends to be why he's what what, what his, his takeaway was. But I think it's also important to talk about what it means for Varys and Illyrio, the two conspirators, because whatever the meta, it's a means for Varys and Illyrio to plausibly claim that they have the real baby Aegon. You see, we we rescued Aegon in the nick of time, swapped him out with some small folk kid. There's nothing to see here, reader. Just Drive on just accept our story as it is, but there's some, you know, huge freaking problems with their story and you don't have to be a Catelyn, uh, Catelyn Stark level genius to figure those uh, those problems out. Like, why would Varys care about Rhaegar's kid, especially since he was the most anti-Rhaegar part of Aerys the Second Small Council? Why, would, why not save Rhaenys Targaryen as well? You know, just have, a, have an heir and a spare. You know, that's the thing that's kind of brought up a fair amount in the Song of Ice and Fire. And that is also some pretty preternatural foresight on Varys' part to to know that Tywin was going to, what, what Tywin was going to do, given that no one knew whether Tywin was coming to, was planning on coming as a friend or a foe. And, and finally, you know, it's a series of events that would, just to track it down chronologically, what would have to happen for this to be affected? First, Varys would have to head down to Pisswater Bend. While Tywin was entering the city and sacking it, he would exchange a jug of wine for the child, then get back to the Red Keep, swap out the child for Aegon, then abscond away. And all of this, with Rhaenys Targaryen being none the wiser and arriving in time before Gregor and Amory Lorch arrived in Rhaenys', um, in Rhaenys chambers, or Aelia of Dorne's chambers, rather. Ultimately, for me, like if you start to like peel apart the layers of the story, it becomes Very implausible that the story that young Griff is relaying, which was probably fed to him by Vars and O'Leary and by John Connington is actually true. Just just my take on it. I mean, there's probably some plausible reasons why it could be true, but I think it's very likely to be untrue.
1: Yeah, I, I think that the more you put the scenario under the microscope, the sort of less sense it makes. So I'm definitely with you there. And we'll certainly be looking at conspiracy theories like later on but I just want to end the question by talking about the sort of brutal nature of baby Aegon's death did George really need to go this far I think that it's definitely by design when we consider the larger story George had to make this awful event really memorable not only to the reader but to the characters in story it had to be so horrific that an entire region of people would still be Thirsty for revenge 15 years later, what Gregor did to Eliana Baby cannot be forgiven by reader or characters in story. And this dynamic is harnessed to justify the general Dornish stance, encourage Oberyn's climactic moment in the fight against the mountain, and also set up Doran's slow game of revenge through Feast and going forward, which we'll talk about later, but is likely to collapse, we think. None of these themes would have been half as strong and poignant if the initial crime hadn't been so brutal. So I think the death of Aegon was crafted to cultivate this need for revenge in story and out. As brutal as George can be, I don't think he often shocks for shock's sake, I do think he considers what he's doing. And this incident with baby Aegon is an essential part of the wider setup, as bleak as it is. Okay, so on to the next question I'm going to ask our guests. Uh, in A Dance With Dragons, we meet a boy or perhaps a young man called Young Griff. Tyrion is immediately suspicious of not just the boy, but of the whole cast of characters travelling east across Essos with him. Everybody aboard the Shy Maid has their secrets. Hmm. That's what Tyrion thinks, and the reader's thinking the same thing. The characters around young Griff seem to be a very odd mix of people, you'll agree with me there, I'm sure, who perhaps share common themes and goals. So what can be said about this group individually, and as a whole unit, Lady Gwynne?
3: Well, they're obviously a collection of oddballs, exiles, rejects from, you know, probably all different walks of life. Tyrion recognizes this about them and he kind of goes down the checklist. And it's very obvious to us readers that John Connington and more are more than what they seem to be from the very start, I think. Raleigh Duckfield turns out to be on the run for an assault on the son of his father's lord, that son being none other than the weedy and wispy Laurent Caswell of Bitterbridge, the current lord who we meet in Catelyn of Clash Kings, incidentally, and also uh, Half Maester. I don't think enough attention is paid to this guy, really. Half a maester. No, we. This is a question that I don't really see the fandom mulling over. We we spend a lot of time thinking about some of these other people, but a half halfmaster. I mean, did he leave the Citadel after you know forging a handful of links, a la Oberyn Martell? Was he tossed out on his keister like Kyburn? Uh, he seems intelligent, so I don't think he flunked out. What What is it that makes him half a maester? I have a lot of questions, and I hope that the relative proximity to, you know, presumably where he came from, assume that he came from Westeros and obviously Old Town at some point, and now he's a lot closer there than he was, hoping that maybe that gives us an opportunity to shade this guy's background in a little bit.
2: I think that's a, that's a great point. I think Haldon doesn't get enough attention and love because he's such an interesting dude. I mean, he's the guy that goes with Tyrion to the brothel in Selhoris, which is just a, a really, I mean, it's a, it's a, Wonderfully written and extremely horrific scene at the same time for, for reasons we don't have to get into here because it's kind of beside the point, but he's he's excellent. And I think we'll get more of his backstory in The Winds Winter* because he is someone that Arianne doesn't counter when she shows up to Griffin's roost in, in Arianne's second chapter. So we'll likely see him at, at some point down the road there. Maybe his grand maester to, to Aegon at some point. We'll see. Um, you know, I, I think the, the cast and crew are interesting in that they're super weird. They're like kind of like the, the a bunch of oddballs and weirdos. And I love that. I mean, and they are also supposed to have like a specific role to Young Griff in the storyline because John kind of is supposed to teach Young Griff how to lead since he was handed the Cane at one point. Halden gives Young Griff a secular education history, math, philosophy, and languages. Lamor teaches Young Griff the mysteries of the faith. So she's kind of Young Griff's vantage point to the predominant Westerosi religion. And if Young Griff has never been to Westeros, this is his primary way that he's able to understand how most of Westeros, most, most people in Westeros believe. And Raleigh Duckfield teaches Young Griff how to use a sword, practicing and sparring with the would-be Aegon and teaching him how to be a knight. And Yandri and Ysilla, who I think are also underloved, they keep the boat afloat and keep it steering in the, in the right direction uh, throughout A Dance with Dragons. Um, and I think like here, ultimately these folks are supposed to provide Aegon with a proper education as well as secure his his, uh, his upswing in, in order to be the, be the king. Uh, you know Varas like talks about how Aegon has had a bunch of things that have he's been shaped since since birth to rule and a lot of that can be found in the honorage that Aegon has around him and I think it's a really impressive resume right I mean just on paper it seems great but I got some concerns shall we say for instance young Griff has an impressive educational pedigree but what he lacks is actual experience outside of a sterilized danger-free environment did Young Griff actually know what it's like to be hungry, hunted and afraid like Varis said? Or was that in the context of a training environment that was supervised by his team of minders? I mean, from my own like personal background from a military context, it's vitally important to actually be trained before you do something, to know how to perform tasks under pressure. But i learned the most about how to be a soldier from actual experiences of being deployed and, and being overseas and i think even if you take away the military context there's a universal application in and any and all career fields including kingship right he's supposed to be a guy that needs to have practical experience under his under his belt i'll talk a little bit more about that uh down the road but i figure well briefly and you guys hit it so how to hit it out of the parking most recent episode about the conspiracies about who lamore is but I just want to briefly like put a put a little foot in for my little uh, pet tinfoil theory about who Lamor might possibly be here, um, because you know he, it's interesting because Tyrion is the one who can't figure out who she is, despite you know figuring out who Jon Connington was and who Aegon the Sixth was. But Lamor, he doesn't know who she is, and, and I love your guys' theory that it's Wended the White Fawn. Given the age, I think it works really well, and some of the other aspects as well. Given uh, given all that stuff, but I want to advance my most tin foily theory out there which is that she is none other than sarah mopasses who you folks did of course mention in your episode and i know put, please put away your pitchforks and, and torches it's just a freaking theory it's just a theory um but but, but so here's why i think that like, sarah makes the most sense as to lamor really is i mean first let's talk about weaknesses sarah is very very definitely died when the grayscale came to pentos via bravosi's ship that had the epidemic on board and alira says he has sarah's hands in his bed encased in glass so she's dead you know my theory is quashed dead Case closed, and I'm dumb and wrong, right? Yeah, probably. Tyrion though doesn't actually see Sarah's hands. Illyrio just says he has her hands encased in glass, and Tyrion, is drunk in his drunken, nihilistic state, at Dance of Dragons, accepts and moves on. Moreover, there's a fascinating piece of narrative evidence for the theory that Sarah eagles the How Illyrio parts with Tyrion: "Tell the boy I am sorry that I will not be there for his wedding. I will rejoin you in Westeros. That I swear by my sweet Sarah's hands." Like. Maybe Illyrio is being a clever clogs here. I've been watching a lot of Peppa Pig recently. By saying that Aegon will make it to Westeros via Sarah's hands, Allah Septa Lammor, A.K.A. Sarah aiding him, right? Okay, that's a little bit of a stretch. I admit it. But uh, in terms of, like the uh, overall evidence as well, I think you have this idea that lamore had changed out of her septa's robes into garb more befitting the wife or daughter of important point, a prosperous merchant, a wife of a prosperous merchant. You say, the wife of a prosperous merchant, like. Illyrio for instance—that's who I'm thinking of. Um, moreover, Lamor says she has to change her garb to avoid the eyes of the people in Volantis to appear in the in the garb of a septa. However, she phrases it kind of weird. Septa Lamor turned back to Prince Aegon. You are not the only one who needs hide why does lamor need to hide in volantis what is the reason that she actually has to hide besides the fact that she's westerosi she does want to draw attention to herself and she also stays mostly on the boat of the shy maid the entire time they're in volantis anyways beyond the evidence on page I, I do think that sarah best fits with someone who has a personal stake in young griff which is what we see demonstrated throughout a dance with dragons and i think she would have a reason to see him succeed but again i admit it, it's completely it's a, it's a little bit out there and i think that george might reveal more in the winds of winter
3: I hope so and I I do want to say if nothing else I will now forever think of Valerio Mopatis as Peppa Pig's papa. <laughs> so it's just perfect. That's great. Mm-hmm. Great one. Thank you for that. I think it's clear that uh, John Connington accepts L'Amour, whoever she is as a fellow member of the nobility. You know, he calls her Lady Lamore and I feel like in their years raising a child together he's probably formed his own ideas about who she is. And just like, you know, Aegon's secret identity was the worst, turned out to be the worst kept secret in the golden company. I kind of feel like John Connington and Lamore were both supposed to remain ignorant of who the other one really is. But look, they spent many, many years together on that tiny little boat raising this kid. And I figure that proximity has led to many thoughts, if nothing else. And uh, luckily for us, John Connington's a point of view. So maybe uh, we won't have to wait forever to hear his thoughts and maybe get the finally get the solution to this mystery.
1: Yeah, the Winds of Winter is going to tell us many things that we want to know, I think. And later on into A Dance with Dragons, it's revealed that young Griff is none other than baby Aegon, miraculously saved by a, tamely, a timely baby swap. Or is he? Dun-dun-dun. We'll talk about those doubts to his authenticity later, but for now let's consider Aegon's character and his ascendancy. It seems that Varys and Illyrio have tried to manufacture the perfect prince in a complex scheme that goes way back, guys. So what are the strengths and weaknesses of of this boy's character that Varys and Illyrio are putting such a huge stock in. Does he have leadership qualities, those kind of qualities that are gonna be essential for him to perhaps one day even be a king? What are his inevitable flaws? Is he really the perfect prince? And guys, what do we think about this perfect prince concept on a fi- philosophical level as a whole. Why don't you start us off, Brynden B. Fish? Well, it's, it, the per- concept of a perfect prince is crap. I
2: mean, that's 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 what I, what I think about a perfect prince because what do they say? The perfect is the enemy of the good, right, so to, so to speak. So I think he, he tends, and, and it's, it's this person isn't perfect either way. Uh, anyways, but let's talk about strengths first. So Tyrion notes that young Griff is fluid in several languages, knows how to spar with Duck, and recognizes that he needs to have dragons to conquer Westeros. So it's obviously Young Griff has a lot of education going into this venture, as I was talking about before. The problem is that he seems kind of bored by what Half Maester Howden is teaching him on the Shy Maid. And when we do see a spot where Young Griff has to apply the skills he's been taught by Duck in terms of the sword fighting stuff, when the Stone Men attack the Shy Maid in Tyrion's fifth chapter in *A Dance, in a dance with Dragons*, he freezes and is only saved by the quick thinking of Tyrion Lannister. Now, that's not to damn the kid for freezing under pressure, but at the same time, when things progress beyond a classroom, sterilized environment, Young Griff can't cut it. Literally. Contrast this to when Jon Snow confronts the uh, the whited other in Elsie Mormont's chambers in A Game of Thrones and acts decisively to save Mormont and himself, of course, aided by Mormont's raven, that is Bloodraven, screaming at Jon to, burn it! Burn it! What I'm, uh, what I'm saying about Young Grift is that he has had a lot of time, energy, and attention thrown his way to train him to be a king, but the more we get into the execution of all that education, the less convincing Aegon makes as a king. The issue question is going to come in the Stormlands, because at the end of A Dance with Dragons, Young Griff says that he is going to lead the attack on Storm's End. And I'll be really curious about whether Aegon will have anything more than nominal command of the attack on Storm's End. And I think that if he doesn't have actual command, it's just going to piss this kid right off.
3: Yeah, definitely agree i mean it seems to me like he's you know he's really trying to assert himself and maybe throw off the yoke of of all these handlers that have been around him all of his life but in spite of his vaunted education and upbringing i'm not really sure he's all that appreciative of these adults around him who have you know spent their lives trying to make him perfect right uh maybe he's smart enough to sense that he's being used We don't really know that yet, (laughs) but I have no doubt that John Connington is smart enough to try to keep a lid on the kid. But on the other hand, we've seen plenty of troublesome Targaryen princelings in this tale, in the main story and in in all the uh, histories. So I feel very anxious about the prospects here. I I think there's going to be trouble. And so speaking of which, let's talk about Aegon's general sense of entitlement. That seemed clear to me from the moment he said he knows who I am, uh, to John Connington in Tyrion five. This kid was never truly a hidden prince. Uh, John Snow, who we've been contrasting him with, is the real deal, a, a hidden prince like Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter, King Arthur, and it, it's a trope that exists all over the place in fantasy literature and, and myths and legends. These are people who were raised in utter ignorance of their birthright, and, and yet somehow stepped into a role when when the time, when it was required of them. With Aegon, on the other hand, the entitlement just kind of rolls off him in waves, you know. Whatever Varys and Illyrio's intentions might have been, I really think that their plans have backfired, uh, and that they've kind of created a little monster, I think that the irony is going to be that the princess that Varys and Illyrio ignored and allowed to live on the streets and the hidden prince, whose existence they remain completely ignorant of, are both better prepared for leadership because their qualities were allowed to grow organically. And if you know anything about horticulture or idioms, you have no doubt heard of hothouse flowers they're very, very fragile things when they're outside of their controlled environment that you were talking about, Jeff. And it, it strikes me as being a great metaphor for Aegon, while Danny and especially John are like these kind of humble and hardy native plants. Especially in the case of John, dare I say, like kind of like a blue flower growing in a chunk of ice.
1: Neat and. Yeah, I can't help but thinking about that classic scene with the Savas when Aegon sort of flips the board. Guys, I think that was in there for a reason. It's really to (laughs) to tell us something to really hit us over the head with this guy is not going to be a perfect prince. So we'll have to see what happens going forward. And um, Jeff makes some really good points about, you know, whether his leadership in leading the charge is going to be authentic or just some something people are entertaining. The man who is overseeing Aegon's plans on the ground is the former Hand of the King and Westerosi exile John Connington, who was posing as Griff, Aegon's father. John is highly ambitious and driven by regret, redemption and perhaps love, Plus, his battle with Greyscale has increased the need to expedite this invasion. Connington wants Aegon married to Daenerys, who, of course, has a handy set of dragons, so we we know what motivates Jon there, and who also has her own designs for the throne, so I was going to ask you guys, do we think this pair would get along if they met? So what are the pros and the cons of a union between these two? Lady Gwyn? Well, it strikes
3: me that the uh, the obvious pros, and you referenced them there, uh, dragons, and also you've got Danny's very well-credentialed lineage, those are also the cons. I mean, She has dragons and she has a claim to the throne that really just can't be disputed. There's been no, you know, like, ooh, she disappeared and now she's back. Like people have kind of had eyes on her for all of her life. So, you know, she's no one is denying that she is Daenerys Targaryen, whereas we see in A Dance with Dragons, people are already calling this boy a feigned boy. So John Connington obviously hopes to capitalize on the former, that being dragons, uh, while neutralizing the latter, that being her claim to the throne by uh, marrying Aegon, that old chestnut of uh, of diplomacy. You know, well, they've got a competing claim, and just marry them together and merge the claim. So, obviously, that's what John Connington's hoping for. But as as for whether the two of them would ever get along, I don't know. I think that Tyrion kind of poisoned the well when he pointed out that Aegon's claim is better than Danny's, Basically, now, uh, my opinion is that the arrogant little twerp was just left wondering, what does he even need dear old Dany for? You know, I'm, I'm moving on. Just, she's she's pointless, you know. No need to wait for her or, or bow down to her in any way.
2: I think you're you're right, and, and I think... <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, I have this, like, vision in my head at some point in maybe A Dream of Spring. Like, Aegon's going to be like, well, you know, Aegon the Conqueror married two women, right? So we can, I can have a second wife, too, since I'm Aegon the Conqueror. My name is also Aegon. Very much Aegon there. You cannot dispute that. So... Come on in to my my little marriage rodeo. I'm ready. To, I'm ready to rock and roll with all with both with both with both you babes. Um, so something something I want to set up here is that I think George is, is doing a really subtle job of setting up the coming conflict between Aegon and Jon Con, and it's really over the Aegon marries Danny plan, which is still in effect at the end of A Dance with Dragons. A lot of folks forget that. Jon Con wants to keep Young Griff single to save him for Danny because he realizes that he'll need her, her army, and her dragons to rule Westeros. But John Kahn does note in The Griffin Reborn that the boy is less tractable now as Prince Aegon than when he was was young Griff. And I imagine that is one of those spots where the kid is going to buck his father figure there. We've all been there before, right? Mom and dad don't like your girlfriend or boyfriend, but she slash he is very hot and you date her anyways. Then you get married and... I guess this hasn't happened to both of you. It's not important. I'm kidding. But there is a Ariane sized boulder rolling towards Storm's End to break up John Kahn's very, very special plans for young Grift to say singling, but definitely not mingling for Danny. Ariane also has a strong ambition, which we'll get to later on. But I think this will be a spot where Aegon says, Nah, Danny can have Marine and Essos, but I'm taking this Dornish babe upstairs. Oh, dear. Right.
3: <laughs> oh, my God. Which is going to leave good old John Connington downstairs raving about dragons. She has dragons, damn it. Well, Hal then pats him on the shoulder and says, don't worry, dude, we've got elephants.
1: Yeah, we've got some <laughs> elephants and we've got Harry Strickland. Why do we need dragons? <laughs> That's all.
3: What do we need dragons for?
1: Okay, so I hope... You guys that we've we've sort of recapped and given you a flavor of Aegon's character and the related themes and issues there. So next I want to move swiftly on to talking about the Blackfyre conspiracy theory. Many fans believe Aegon is not quite who he thinks he is. Fans wonder if the boy is actually a Blackfyre descendant unknowingly posing as Aegon Targaryen in order to gain the invading forces, certain benefits and support and so on. There are some great perks to being a Targaryen. Hence, he is known by many in the fandom as Faegon, meaning fake Aegon. And this is one of the more convincing theories to come from the fandom. I have no doubt about that. So, first of all, What would the proposed Blackfire conspiracy add to the story? Because I I think with many theories, people don't give a sort of point to the theory and that devalues it. So, Brendan, why don't you tell us what it means, what it would mean to the story on that level?
2: Yeah, I I think to take like the 10,000 foot view of the narrative this is why I think George decided on the Blackfyre conspiracy to begin with. He realized that the history and the backstory he was writing along with Danny's growing dragons made it so that Danny would pretty easily knock out the Lannisters if they were still in power in King's Landing when she shows up, especially as their alliance with the Tyrells starts to fray by the end of a Storm of Swords. So the Blackfire's work to effectively complicate Danny's easy pathway to victory, and this will become much more evident as additional factions join with Aegon, Friends in the Reach, Faith Militant, Dorne, and of course Barristan Selmy. I'm kidding, and it's only a theory. Moreover, in that same vein, Danny has, you know, she's earned her stripes as queen, doing the painstaking work to build a coalition and learning how to rule the marine despite all the hardships that she faces there. She's not born on third base, kind of the same way that Aegon is presented as in A Dance with Dragons. So when Danny hears about this kid just waltzing on into Westeros and getting acclaimed by the people as their savior, she's going to be pissed, man. I would be pissed if someone was taking all the glory, all that hard work that I earned. And this kid's basically just given the Iron Throne as opposed to her having to earn it. But I also see a really interesting and distinct possibility. And I'm borrowing thoughts here from Eliana from the Girls Gone Canon podcast, that Danny may think that Aegon is a big fake... Or she may think that he's her last living relative. If the latter ends up being true, I think it's going to shroud the coming dance of the dragons with a sense of tragedy, right? Because Danny has to kill her last family member just as she watched her brother Viserys die in front of her in Kaldrogo's tent at Vaes Dothrak in A Game of Thrones. And if that's a dynamic that George decides to play with, I like to think it'll be somewhat similar to her thoughts about the Lazarene town, what immediately happens after uh, two chapters after Viserys is killed, when when the when the Dothraki sack it, this is the price of the Iron Throne, as she thinks there. And switching back briefly to the meta side, the Blackfires also serve as a bridging mechanism between the Duncan Egg series of novellas and the main series, which of course connects events from the, swor- from the swor- sword from the Sworn Sword from the Sworn Sword and the Mystery Knight and any future Duncan Egg short stories with Westeros in its present age. And I think that's uh, I think it's smart on George's part to connect his his smaller stories with the main narrative.
1: Lady Gwynn, what do you have to say? I I think these are uh, good
3: points. And really, essentially, we're going to boil Aegon down to narrative tension. This is something that George really excels at, you know, complicated tension devices. For instance, why have a civil war between two factions when you can have a war between five kings, right? Aegon certainly adds plenty of complication as you were just saying, you know, he's she's kind of spoiled Danny's lovely plans of sailing into Westeros and sitting on the throne that she is owed or that she, you know, that she thinks should be hers by rights. I tend to agree that Danny is going to start out thinking or maybe or maybe become convinced that Aegon is that last living relative because that really fits well with her themes. It's going to mean so, so, so much to her. She only ever had Viserys, and look, he was a shit, and she was completely aware of it. So, you know, she spends a lot of time thinking about family and home. And when she thinks that her long lost nephew might be there for her, I can initially see her really wanting to embrace him and maybe struggling, you know, even if that changes over time, really continuing to struggle with that. But what happens, you know, when she discovers that he has rejected her? He marries Arianne, steals her throne, and, and then she finds out or begins to suspect <coughs> Tyrion that he's an imposter. There's huge tension there, right? So, I mean, just adding to this sort of like, Danny uh, is feeling so much tension, but stay with me here because as interesting as all of this is, how in the world after going through all of this with Aegon? her older brother's long lost son is Daenerys Targaryen ever going to be able to trust or accept Jon Snow as Rhaegar's long lost son. She just won't, you know, after she's just been through the ringer with this kid. So I think that the real narrative tension that Aegon is supplying is actually groundwork for future Jon and Daenerys tension.
1: Yeah, that's great, and it's something I'd not r- really given much thought to, but you're right, it's, it could be, you know, entertainment within itself, but also part of a wider and, dare I say, more important setup for later in perhaps uh, Dream of Spring. Okay, I was just going to add that Aegon being a Blackfire could add several layers of intrigue, complications, and historical ver- verisimilitude, that would prevent it from a sort of being a sort of disposable part of the story. As our friend Egrain said on our Discord forum recently, Danny is the impoverished heir, John is the secret heir, so George repeating these tropes would make Aegon redundant, but if Aegon is the false heir, he would be adding something new to the story. Altogether, we get a great deal of depth if the Blackfire conspiracy is true, and I think that is. One of the reasons why it's such a popular and widespread theory. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about sort of how the stories evolved, maybe a little bit of meta discussion here. The Blackfires are mentioned only after a certain point. For example, there is no mention of them in The Hedge Knight when you think there surely would be, being set so shortly after the reign of Aegon the Unworthy. Remembering George often likes to write in a gardener style, adding things as he goes along. Blackfire theorists tend to believe this was an aspect to the story that came to him rather late on. So was it always George's intention to, number one, make Aegon fake Lady Gwynne?
3: Well... This is subtly different from the question of whether George always intended to have a pretender figure from the start, which I tend to agree uh, with Jeff about. It's, there there are so few clues that would lead in that direction in Game of Thrones. And the one place you would expect to see a really big clue when in Arya 3 when Arya accidentally eavesdrops on Varys and Illyrio, there's nothing. Nothing. I've read that a hundred times, just trying to find a clue. And if there's one there, I've missed it. So uh, shout out to me if you think there's one there. I'd love to hear it. (laughs) As for the inclusion of an Aegon Pretender specifically... That really seems to have arisen around Clash and the Hedge Knight in its nascent form and grown on from there. And since George is so influenced by real life history and takes a lot of inspiration from the Wars of the Roses, I thought I'd take a minute to point out that at some point he must have realized that he could have his own Perkin Warbeck in A Song of Ice and Fire by turning poor little baby Aegon, who's... Initially, just kind of a plot device whose death caused all this tension between the main characters in the novels, into a Westerosi version of The Princes in the Tower. Uh, the story of Edward IV of England's sons, who were imprisoned in the Tower of London by their wicked uncle Richard III, and then vanished from history, has captured people's imaginations for centuries. And while Aegon's tale is bloodier and more dramatic, as George's fantasy is wont to be, uh, it is really at its heart the same story of this cruelly murdered heir who actually may have survived. Uh, And by the way, the fact that the sons of Edward IV, spoiler, didn't really survive... (laughs) <laughs> and that the pretender, Perkin Warbeck was not actually one of them. This, and he was ultimately exposed and executed by Henry VII. In my opinion, speaks volumes about where George is probably going with our boy, Aegon. So to circle back around and actually answer your question, <laughs> by the time Aegon was introduced, I think there had been considerable groundwork laid for there being a pretender in the story even if it may not have originally been this specific person who appears to us in Dance of Dragons.
2: Yeah, and I I agree with, with all of that, especially the Perkin Warbeck stuff, which I think is a, is a fascinating thing that, that George liked to play with where he like kind of picks and chooses his history and is like, okay, I'm going to kind of make, manipulate here, but of course, because this is a fantasy story, I'm going to make it much bloodier and has to be really end in all, all in fire and blood at the end of probably Aegon stories we'll talk about towards the end. Uh, So I, I I've got a rough draft of an essay that i've been working on for you know two three years as in i've it sat in my drafts folder for two to three years now and i kind of open up once in a while and then immediately close it when i get depressed that i'm never going to finish it but what better place to like talk about it than here with you guys so you know i, I talked about the meta debate about earlier about whether the Mubber's dragon was in you know in george's mind from the outset and i think still it's probably not until george was writing a clash of kings uh, so i think that there's actually maybe a little bit more complexity here, at least in the meta-origins of the Mummer's Dragon, because it's not just Clash, it might also be found, the origins of the Mummer's Dragon might be found in the Hedge Knight, because they're introduced to Arian Brightflame, who ends up getting exiled to Lys at the end of the story, that free city in Essos. And thereafter, in 1998, George was asked in the Sospeak Martin whether a- Arian had any descendants, he Answered that Arian eh, may have had a few on the wrong side of the sheets, meaning that Arian may have had some bastards in Lys. So what I kind of wonder is whether George was originally planning for the Mummer's Dragon line to come via Aryan Brightflame's descendants. And then he developed the family tree the succession crisis of Aegon IV and ended up deciding on the Blackfyres as the origins for the Mummer's Dragon. However... George eventually fleshed out Arian's descendants a little bit more beyond that kind of like, yeah, he might have had bastards with them, some of them maybe possibly still existing, some of their descendants thereof. In The World of Ice and Fire, we learned that Arian's legitimate, not illegitimate, legitimate son, Maegor Targaryen, was put forth as a potential candidate for the Iron Throne at the Council of 233 AC. But because Maegor was just a baby and also the son of a fucking monster and also had the name of Maegor, the Council said, uh uh-uh, uh, no, 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 no. And thereafter, Maegor Targaryen drops completely from the narrative with nothing. We don't know anything about this kid's life thereafter. We also know from Allure that the Blackfire male line was extinguished during the War of the Nine-Penny Kings after Maelie's the Monstrous met the business end of Barrison and Selmy's sword on the Stepstones. Of course, that means that the female line likely survived and lived on after the 260s AC. And it's interesting that we have yet to meet any female Blackfire descendants, or have we? I mean, so much of this is speculation, and I get it. And it's but it's kind of fun to play with the speculation, especially since we don't have George's established uh, published word on it. But you know, Megor, if Megor survived and had kids, the probable range he would have kids was between the ages of eighteen or forty, or roughly two fifty one to two seventy one AC. And Illyrio shows Tyrion a locket with her likeness, with a likeness of, a, of, his, of his second wife, Sarah. And Tyrion sees, quote-unquote, big blue eyes and golden hair streaked by silver, which are some potential Targaryen traits. So that could be S- Sarah Mopatis, who becomes Lamore, or it could be a potential descendant of Arian Brightflame, who has lived on from Maegor's line or from the Bastard line of, of Arian Targaryen and is living on thereafter. But I, I think, you know... You know, Illyrio, there's also the great theory, and I know, uh, Lady Gwyn. you talked about this on, on the old westeros.orgs forum. It's actually where I found the original theory back in the day, uh, talking about the the bright fire theory, how, how Aegon is the descendant of both the black fire line as well as Aryan bright flames line. I think that's still a potential possibility that George has in mind. But I think originally, George was planning, maybe, and this is his theory, planning for. Aegon, the, a, the Mummer's Dragon, to be from Arian's line. Before he decided that, hey, blackfire is a really cool name, so we're gonna go with him being a Blackfire. But maybe they can be the bright flames can be involved, mm-hmm. involved as well.
3: What did we call the, that? Was called the Bright Fire, Bright Fire theory. I always used to get it confused and sometimes call it other th- Black Flame. But I don't know. <laughs> <It's> like,
1: <laughs> yes. There is there is quite a lot of off offshoot theories, isn't there? They they seem to be popular on the old Westeros forums, but some of them have endured. So I was thinking, I wanted to talk about what's the evidence of George sort of edging in House Blackfire into the narrative and into the canon. Lady Gwyn and I have talked about this on our... Blackfire episodes. So, Brendan, why don't you give us your take? Because it'd be nice to hear a fresh voice. I don't want to just re- regurgitate something that we've already said. So what what do you think is the evidence of George sort of coming up with this idea of the, the Blackfires and sort of assimilating it into the canon? What do you think? Well, I can stand to hear your voice all day, man. So I don't know what you're talking
2: about. You want to hear my my take on, on things. I just, was it's it's like I'll be like driving and like listening to Ray West or something like, yeah, it's just so soothing. Like both of their voices are just so great. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, and then I start to like be like kind of like get lulled and then I lose the track of everything and rewind. And I'm, yeah, right. Not to run everyone over. Yeah, that's 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 important.
3: A lot of people say they use us as a sleep aid.
2: So. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess you do have that, uh, that ASMR. <laughs> is that what they call the uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not just that we're dead boring. No, not boring. It's just the voices are just so soothing. It's great. I think it's great. I mean, it's it's awesome. So my my, my less less uh, refined voice on on the origins of the blackfires. So, I mean, they they start coming up in Jamie and Catelyn and Davos's chapters in A Storm of Swords. Like, oh, the Black Fires. There there's something we should be really concerned about. Like, that we have their example, which everyone knows about, right? Right? No, we don't. We don't know shit about the Black Fires until you know later on there and then um the context again i was talking about this earlier but it comes from the uh george fleshing out the backstory and especially the targaryen family tree and deciding on aegon the fourth and the and, and basically what um what your what Aegon the Fourth was doing with with Blackfire and bequeathing it to which which son his bastard son the, which is what actually happened as opposed to his legitimate son, and uh, you know there's a there's a Elio uh, Garcia Jr. and, and Lynn Anson video from 2015 which they reviewed the Hedge Knight and they talked about getting George's notes from 98 and 99 um, basically where they were talking about that George's that we start that they start. That george starts to actually write these guys into the narrative around that time so, and it was actually right after clash of kings was published and that's why there are no blackfires until we get to a storm of swords when george is actually doing the the, the backstory i i kind of alluded to this but i think this is a, a kind of one of the weak things about the garden george's gardening style because, you know, there are plenty of places where the Blackfires would be worked really well into the backstory of a Game of Thrones, like, you know, a bastard line inheriting the throne. Like, oh, I don't know, say like Joffrey, for instance, would be a really good example of Ned Stark being like, ah, the Blackfires, you see, there was some issues with that back in the day, they invaded over and over again. and But we don't get that because George hadn't invented it yet, but that's that's okay. Um, but it's just a little bit of a small weakness of, of the Gardner style. And of course, he probably didn't have the Mummer's Dragon in mind until he was writing A Clash of Kings.
1: the strengths of this theory and investigate why people talk about it in the same sort of breath as RLJ, you know, as a theory that people are pretty much convinced of. So what are the strongest piece of evidence, pieces of evidence that this conspiracy is true and exists? And how do they fit together to present a convincing case that this Aegon is, in fact, a fire Why don't you begin us, Lady Gwynn?
3: Well, I'm just going to start on a kind of a, a higher level, on an overview, um, because I, this is such a watch it grow plot line, as we've been discussing, and I do think it is one of the finer examples of George kind of gardening away there, uh, and and he does, he manages to Take that foundation, in spite of the weaknesses that Jeff noted, but he takes, you know, a very few early references. This, he's got this relatively disconnected Aegon from a Game of Thrones, and then he gets the Danny House of the Undying stuff, the Mummer's Dragon in Clash of Kings, and and he got these sneaky references to Black that he adds in what, by Storm of, Sto- Storm of Swords, and and that. Really starts laying course after course with the blackfire material full on in the sworn sword, which is you know full full on after the first three books of the of the series have been published and the first Duncan Egg story as well. From from there on out, he's he's laying a convincing enough plot line that kind of feels. If you stand back like this and look at it, it really does have a feeling of being revealed to us slowly over time, because that's exactly what the author wanted. Damn it. it. It doesn't feel like it's happened that way because it didn't exist in the first place until you get into this level of real deep analysis and and, and picking it apart. Uh, but if, you know, to most readers, they're reading this and, and they're saying, oh, yeah, look, here was a little clue way back there.
2: <laughs> I think that's that's great. And, and I think that's it, exactly what George does is like, as, as soon as he realizes that the Blackfires are going to be a big part of the story, he's like, Blackfires everywhere, Blackfires, Blackfires. Everyone's talking about the Blackfires and all the invasions. And it's it's like, oh, well, this must be important. We should uh, keep it, keep this in mind for the future. What does it mean? What does it mean? Um, so, so one of the things that, that George does, as, as you were saying, is that he like takes the Mummers' Dragon vision that Danny has in the house of the Undying, And then ex- probably is extrapolating that out to what's likely going to be the, the fate of Aegon coming forward. And then, you know, there's things like evidence in, in, especially in, in a dance with dragons, especially when you get the, the golden company, like why would the sellsword company that is always back to the Blackfyres participating in restoring the son of Rhaegar Targaryen to the Iron Throne? Hmm. I mean, Illyrio tries to give like this, like, oh, red or black doesn't actually matter. But you're like, dude, you're so full of shit, bro. Um, but it's uh, it's great. Uh, I, I think that uh, that George does a really good job. And even Tyrion realizes that there's something more in this venture besides coin. Uh, for, for for Illyrio and it's, it's like it's weird and even Tyrion's like Tyrion's like basically being like the voice of the reader here like it's so weird that you guys were always supporting the black dragon and here you are supporting the red dragon weird that like wink wink nod nod George is saying to us like weird and then you know you you I don't want to repeat what you guys brought up really well in your, in your latest episode, but this Septimarybolt story about the clanking dragon and the black dragon sign washing up uh, with rust after Lord Derry cut it down. This is another piece of, of strong narrative evidence uh, for, for this theory being true. And then, you know, i, I bring this up because I think it's really interesting because you know, I've am you been doing a lot of the meta stuff and analysis recently, but an early draft of Tyr- what became Tyrion's third chapter in A Dance with Dragons it's actually the second chapter when, when George read it, but not important. Mentions that Illyrio wanted to give young Grift his blessing. So remember in, in the published version, Illyrio shows up with Tyrion and they meet up with uh Raleigh Duckfield and Half Maester Halden. And what actually happens in the in the draft version of the chapter is that, and here's a quote Halden eyes Tyrion and then begins to speak in another language. Tyrion cannot tell what it is, but he thinks it might be Valentine. Tyrion catches a few words that come close to high Valyrian the words he catches are queen dragon and sword sword is the most interesting of those three concepts that are introduced there because of something we'll talk about a little bit more i don't want to spoil it but it's potentially speaking about a very specific sword and george was probably as he was editing a dance with dragons rewriting is like i don't want to make it super obvious that that aegon is is a, a black fire i've got to like do some like works so i'm going to kind of quickly edit that out and so what we have in, in the published version is illyro gives him a chest which is full of uh, a suit of armor and like some like sweets or something like that because the boy always loved it which of course is a big piece of the evidence for why illyro is likely regardless if, if sarah's involved is likely to be Aegon's father
1: yes i do wonder which sword in this discussion about house blackfire <laughs> it is that you're <laughs> alluding alluding it's to mystery <laughs> Okay, I think the evidence is really strong, and I appreciate what you guys have said. And of course, a lot of you out there are very familiar with these lines of evidence. But I want to talk about something which f- is a simple observation, I think. But for me, you know, it, it hits home. The black fires in in recent history just kept coming back. You know, they didn't give up. Aegon the Aegon the Fourth opened pandora's box westeros has this huge problem that manifested in not one but five rebellions and we're just expected to think that george wrote this in and then suddenly you know gave up on the black fires and their cause like where did it go where where was this headed and it as if the whole catastrophe was merely written to just be a note in his world building i don't believe it the blackfires are defined by their persistence and we know if there was a sixth rebellion it would come from essos it would be promoted by a bunch of exiles and would center around the golden company like i said this is a, a detail which doesn't get discussed but the absolute dogged tenacity of the blackfires is something i want to sort of shine my light on and I always consider what George was thinking when he made them strike back to varying degrees of success or failure time and time again generation after generation and how this all looks in Aegon the 6th in, in the light of Aegon the 6th invasion from the shores of Essos with a curious selection of exiles by his side it just fits together too well I, you know I I just don't think the blackfires are you know, a stroke of his pen designed to be well-building, verisimilitude purely. I think that there's got to be some greater meaning to why he brought them in and why they they get their own section in the world book that's pages long. Okay, so in the Blackfire backstory, the key moment in history is when Aegon the Unworthy legitimized his bastards, which led to the creation of House Blackfire. Aegon bestowed the famous Targaryen blade, which we were alluding to earlier, Blackfire, to his son Daemon, and as a result, a succession crisis and schism was created that caused multiple rebellions and much strife in the Seven Kingdoms. I know that you know we, we're privy to Catelyn's thoughts, and she thinks about how much damage it did. So, whatever happened to this symbolic blade? Blackfire and do we think it will make an important appearance in A Song of Ice and Fire given that it could carry so much narrative weight just in one blade what do you think Brynden? So
2: I'm gonna borrow heavily from from Aziz from History Westers, who I believe is is in the chat. Hi, Aziz, I miss you, buddy. Um, in, in which you know he he talked about that the sword Blackfire never actually appears in in text. referenced in the five books of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's only actually in a lot of the extra textual material. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because the sword just kind of disappears given all of the extra textual material that we have there because the pro-Red Dragons, the Targaryen army, never reclaimed the sword Blackfire from the corpse of Maely's Blackfire, who was said to be the last person who wielded the sword. And you would imagine that they would have reclaimed the sword had they uh, had they found it because it would have been a major propaganda coup for the, for the Red Dragons. So it seems likely that the Golden Company, those that survived, took the sword back with them to Essos. And as I was talking about earlier, about that earlier draft from A Dance of Dragons, which sword was it? I don't know, maybe Blackfire? The chapter implies that Illyrio has possession of that sword Blackfire and was planning to give it to Young Griff. It seems like the idea here was for Young Griff to show up to the Golden Company corral with the Blackfire in hand as a means of impressing his army of cell swords to remind the new leadership of the Golden Company and his origins. But in the published version, the scene is rewritten to cut the material completely out of the book. Again, why? Because George is like, it's too obvious. Need to kind of roll that one back a little bit. So I would guess that maybe Illyrio still has the sword in his possession in Pentos. Or maybe even the Golden Company now has possession of the sword and will give it to young Griff at some point. Maybe at his coronation ceremony, that seems like a logical place to do it. At the same time the sword is such a huge deal in the backstory despite again not appearing in the five published books that there's little doubt in my mind that it's going to be important for the winds of winter most of westeros probably doesn't care about the sword blackfire because it's been 40 years since the blackfires were an existential threat to the realm however varas and illyrio know the power of symbols of as varas famously says to to in the clash of kings about the shadows on a wall the sword Blackfire could be one such symbol, the conqueror sword, returned by Rhaegar's son. A, a few months ago, I wrote this essay in which I theorized that George Parallel wrote Aegon's arc in the Wind's Winter, all the Ariane and Jon Connington chapters, alongside of the Dance of the Dragon story, which he was writing during that same time timeframe, 2012, 2013, 2014, which dominates a lot of what later became Fire and Blood volume one. In Fire and Blood, we get this passage after Aegon II Targaryen calls together his allied lords to hail him as king. Every visible symbol of legitimacy belonged to Aegon. He sat the Iron Throne, he lived in the Red Keep, he wore the Conqueror's Crown, wielded the Conqueror's Sword, and had been anointed by a Septon of the Faith before the eyes of tens of thousands. Grand Maester Orwyle sat in his councils, and the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard had placed the crown upon his princely head, and he was male, which in the eyes of many made him the rightful king. His half-sister, of course, Rhaenyra, the usurper, To me, that's a super awesome historical foundation for what Young Griff will arrive in Westeros with. Every visible symbol of legitimacy. The sword, I think, is going to be the cherry on top of those symbols of legitimacy. What Illyrian Varas are probably hoping is that the sword will serve to enshrine Young Griff with the optics of Aegon the Conqueror, Jaehaerys the Wise, Darren the First, the Young Dragon, and maybe Daemon the First Blackfire. At least the chivalric, you know, story we get about him. Not, just, just not the Blackfire part. No need to bring that up whatsoever. Think about it. Don't even think about it. Just think about how awesome he was. Not his name at all.
3: <laughs> well, what, what interests me about this sword is that it, it probably is going to be used exactly like you say, as a symbol of legitimacy. Uh, and while... You know, kind of like the rank and file, most people are probably not really that worried about implications and all that stuff. I do think that its reemergence in the story is probably going to be what leads to some people to begin questioning Aegon's background, kind of in the same way that we the readers do when the Golden Company support is revealed and we're like, we raise our eyebrows and kind of squint sideways and go, Really? Golden Company support? What? So I think there's going to be some people who are like, no, Blackfire. But the Blackfires are extinct, right? Sure. Could this kid be? No, surely, surely not. It just gonna wonder. And there's going to be this sort of undercurrent of to add to, obviously, the few people who are already out around there calling him a feigned boy, etc. You know, doubting who he says he is.
1: So why don't we think about the implications of this theory to the characters around Aegon? Who will ally with Aegon as a Targaryen? And what happens when these allies would find out that he's, in this theory, a Blackfire, And how might a reveal take place? So yeah, why don't we talk about this sort of the effect, the effect and the ripple effect of what could happen to those who put their faith in Aegon Targaryen to, you know, find out that, Hey, we've been duped guys. What do you
2: think? What do you think, Brendan? Well, you know, as one who's never been tricked once in my entire life, I think I would be a little upset if I had learned I was tricked, but I, you know, it's, you know, Lady Gwynn was, you were bringing up earlier about how, how Aegon is coming as Rhaegar's son. He's not coming as a Blackfire. He's not coming as one of these usurpers to the Iron Throne. Because the, the seemingly the people who are in charge of the Golden Company learn their lesson. They learned that, you know, the fifth time after five times of Westeros saying no maybe it's about like kind of like rebranding a little bit you know we got to rebrand and, and put a brand out there in the form of, of Rhaegar's son who was very very popular uh, you know everyone besides Robert Baratheon seems to have a pretty positive opinion of Rhaegar Targaryen in, in Westeros and that's you know important so you know we could be pretend we're, we're Rhaegar's son right and it's totally fine that's how we're actually going to get into power so we're uh, we're rebranding and it's going to be okay um, you know I think we, we could talk briefly about like Aegon's allies that are going to be there because of him being a purported son of Rhaegar Targaryen. You got Dorne who's going to show up obviously with, with Ariane being there. I'm curious whether the Ironwoods might actually sit this one out given their investment in Quentin Martell, because he was fostered at castle Ironwood. it would be super ironic that the Ironwoods end up not supporting this Blackfyre rebellion since they were involved in three of the five Blackfyre rebellions previously. Uh, you also have the Friends in the Reach. I mean, you guys talked about this so well in, in your episode. I don't want to retread what you guys already did. Um, but, I, I, you know, the, you know, Laswell Peak, when he's saying this in the Lost Lord chapter, I would take what he's saying with a huge degree of salt because how many Blackfire loyalists are still in Westeros in the year 301 AC? Probably not many, right? I mean, we know that the Peaks are around because they're mentioned in. Uh, I forget where they're they're mentioned as like Renly maybe not I don't I'm, not, I'm not even I don't even remember how they're mentioned. They might even just be mentioned in the appendix of, of a Song of Ice and Fire, very small. And what what do they what do you think you they actually have like the peaks in terms of like a you know a castle or anything like that given the amount of I think they they might have a barn, maybe maybe just a barn door they hold up over their family's heads, you know, when it starts to rain because it's you know, you you can't rebel over and over and over against the Iron Throne and get just like crushed every single time without some consequences flowing forward from that from that those failures so i uh, i think the people that you, you you folks talked about this really well but the charlies and rowans were likely join up with with the young grift here and i think thought maybe uh maybe the oakarts might be poised to join, join with the young Griff as well given that their their lovely son Ares oakart who was not my doppelganger was uh was killed on a lannister mission down in dorne protecting Marcella. that might be a reason why lady oakart joins up with uh with Aegon but we'll see about that um just one canon I think is not going to join up with Aegon or the High Towers. they get mentioned frequently but I don't think they're going to be doing anything besides attempting and failing to survive Euron's assault on Old Town in the Winds of Winter that's going to go very very badly for them so I think they're gonna be like you figure out what's going on on your side of the continent I've got my I got shit going on on my side of the continent I got to take care of and so um Besides that, we have the High Sparrow, and you guys talked about this as well, but I think there's you, Aegon's been trained by by a Septa throughout his entire life, so he's familiar with the mysteries of the faith. And the High Sparrow is increasingly increasingly alienated from the Lannister and the Tyrells, given the fact that he's putting Cersei Lannister and Marjorie Tyrell on, on trial in, in the Winds of Winter for their alleged infidelity, and in Cersei's case, actual infidelity, and, and regicide and all the terrible things that Cersei does in, 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 the, in the story. And I kind of wonder whether Tyene Sand, who Dora Martell sends up, to king's landing to kind of infiltrate the high sparrow might be that glue or at least be that that liaison between the high sparrow and um and and young grift i think that's going to be a a potential thing that ends up happening in the winds of winter where tyeen is basically like hey you don't like this guy tommen you don't like his mom you don't like the tyrells either I've heard about this really great guy down in the stormlands and he's like a he's super into God these days. Like he you know, God God is a big part of his life, you know. But yeah. So you asked, but I'm getting a little bit of a far afield of the question. You asked like how like the revelation of him being fake might happen and might occur. I kinda wonder whether young Grift will never be revealed as an imposter, at least explicitly on page. Not to say there won't be continued hints about it, but it's a secret that Varys and Olyro will likely take to their graves, especially if they're related to this kid. Now, there's a separate argument about whether someone like John Connington might realize or come to believe that, that Aegon is fake. But that, I think, would have a lot of dramatic significance for him to realize all that. That all that child-killing and sacking and killing that he does for young Griff will be for a fraud. It was not truly Rhaegar's son. Now, those allies that I was mentioning before, I'm not sure about them believing or disbelieving the young grift is real really matter a whole lot to them. And if any, like Mathis Rowan have issues, I kind of think they're going to just basically kind of sunk cost fallacy and be like,
1: okay, well that sucks. What else am I supposed to do? Right? Interesting points all around. I I was just thinking when you mentioned the high towers, I just want to take the opportunity to shout out our new episode, which is going to be wrapped tomorrow. That'll be, on the rollout, we are going to the Reach, guys, in our next The Winds of Winter Primer. And if you enjoyed and you, you're intrigued by what Brynden B. Fish was just saying about the high towers and the Euron's potential attack on Old Town, well, we've got the episode for you. And back to the question, the two sort of parties I'm really interested in finding out about this Blackfire, proposed Blackfire plot, are... The Dornish, if they ally with Aegon, of course, and John Connington, as Brendan Beefish was talking about. Both Doran and John Con have personal reasons to be pro, specifically pro Targaryen, And so I don't believe a dragon is a dragon from their point of view. I don't think that sort of excuse is going to wash over them and they're just going to carry on about their day. A Blackfire reveal could shake both of them. They would certainly feel duped, very heavily duped, I think. And I wonder about these two characters experiencing the fallouts from Aegon's later arc in a sort of parallel. Both are patient, long game players who might suddenly have to go all in with Aegon's invasion and perhaps both are headed for these parallel tragedies, ultimately revolving around Aegon's defeat. Whether a clumsy or untimely blackfire reveal by Varys or Illyrio will actually hasten that defeat is something I really think is worth considering. And I I like this idea that after all this time, Varys and Illyrio make some crucial mistake at the end of their game regarding this Blackfyre reveal and their entire house of cards comes tumbling down around them. And that could, of course, involve Doran and John Connington. What do you think, Lady Gwyn?
3: I think... Uh, you know, I think you're right. These these two people are heavily invested for their own very personal reasons, Dorian and John Connington. I think that narratively speaking, that they both kind of need to know or at least strongly suspect that they've backed an imposter or that they should have played their hand differently before the curtain comes down for them, as I indeed think it will for both of them. They're both seem to be doomed in story. So I see this very much as kind of an end of arc revelation or regret that won't have a huge impact on Aegon's story, but will have a huge impact on Doran and John Connington. And we so we might never actually see publicly a reveal, though, if the sword comes into the story, like I said, maybe that's where suspicion starts to be raised. But I think that those people who support Aegon that we mentioned, Dorne and the friends in the Reach and the Faith and and anyone else who joins Aegon specifically because they oppose Cersei, which I think will be a lot of what's happening. These people are going to have no choice but to continue supporting him because the alternative is uh, more than a little unpleasant. So, you know, they, they may suspect there may be questions serious questions but I think a lot of these people are just going to have to go yep okay this is Aegon Rhaegar's son no matter what those people or things are saying over there we're just going forward with this and and we're all in so I don't think it's ever going to be like a kingdom-wide revelation and he's you know yanked off the throne necessarily.
1: Yeah it's interesting and will we even know like Brynden said we could go all this time and it could be ruminated on by POV characters that Aegon could be Blackfire without ever really being explicitly confirmed. There's just so many options for how it could come down and I think all of them are equally as intriguing. So we've talked about Aegon and his, his character, his personality and his situation. And then we moved on to the Blackfyre theory and tried to sum that up in a nutshell, although I know most of you are already familiar with it. But now in this next section, I want to talk about the future, make some predictions, talk about where Aegon and this, I think, probable Blackfire backstory is going to take us in The Winds of Winter and beyond. So George has supplied us with two Ariane preview chapters, most likely chapters that he moved from A Dance With Dragons to The Winds of Winter. Both are extremely intriguing and follow Ariane as she travels to Aegon and company in order to find out the truth of their situation and sort of inform Doran of what she thinks is going on with this party there. The Dornish princess seems destined to meet Aegon. So why do we think George is putting these two characters together in the early pages of The Winds of Winter? Because he has obviously made some efforts to get these two on page in the same room. So what do you think? Is there a succinct answer, Brynden? (laughs)
2: Yeah, because young Griff and Arianne are going to visit the Dornish Pass through the Red Mountains, known as the Bone Way, right? If you catch my drift, or maybe they're going to go to Essos and climb Bone Mountain. Come on, they have sex, right? That's obviously what's why they're being brought together in, in A Song of Ice and Fire.
1: There's a lot of boning going on in these, <laughs> uh... <laughs> there
3: is. This is funny. When I, read, when I first read this question, for some reason, I started... I heard Barry
2: White. Wow, 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 wow.
1: Well... Guys, luckily for us, we do have Ariane's POV, so we can all experience this event on page very soon when the Winds of Winter comes out.
3: The answer to what are you most looking forward to in the Winds of Winter?
1: Oh, dear. (laughs) So, so Jeff, can you expand on, you know, why you think this and so on?
2: Yeah, so I mean, so Arian chapters are written in in two thousand and ten, like you were alluding to, and because George was writing at one point thinking that he was going to include Aegon's invasion and Arianne and Aegon meeting up and them probably getting together but most likely what's going to happen so he wrote those chapters and then he restructured uh, a dance with dragons again and kind of pushed the pushed had the initial innovation occur in a dance with dragons but pushed a lot of the the outcomes uh to to the winds of winter i mean from a plot perspective young griff and Ariane are getting together because george is doing the careful plotting and making young griff's ascendancy believable without doran martell dispatching his dornish spears Young Griff's chances are kind of He's fucked otherwise. I mean, even if he takes Storm's End, which he does, per Arianne's second chapter, he's still got to face an enormous Tyrell army and a ton of Lannister soldiers that are still in and around King's Landing. So Dorn provides the easiest and closest means of young Griff getting soldiers necessary to continue his successes. The other part of it is you put so well in, in your recent episode is that, you know, similar to young Griff and John Kyneton pulling off their own Southern Ambitions conspiracy to overthrow the Lannisters, we see the narrative building blocks for a reprise of the Breaker Elia Liana dynamic with young Griff, Ariane, and Elia San respectively fulfilling the roles of their forebears. Narrative forebears, anyways. Tyrion once said that we dance on the strings of our fathers and our children will follow us, follow us that thereafter. And I think that's some writing dynamite to have this occur within the, the, this generation. This is a another way that a permutation that we see of our dancing on the strings of our, of our parents. You know it's kind of an almost aside even if you want to talk about why it's important i think that arianne will be the proximate fulfillment of cersei's one more younger and beautiful prophecy from maggie the frog though i suspect that multiple individuals will fulfill the narrative role long term for cersei being the one to overthrow them throw her overthrow her rather
3: well i think that uh dorn needs dragons or at least a dragon, to achieve its goals. And, you know, Aegon is the self-proclaimed only dragon you need, which Alden reiterates to Arianne in Ariane 2, Winds of Winter, you know, basically echoing that old saying that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And so we've got these two together so we can see Ariane's decision-making once again, sorry, girl but she's bringing her father's lifetime of plotting to its knees once again in the Winds of Winter. Uh, but George does also love those historical parallels. And that, that Rhaegar, Elia, Lyanna thing is, I think, going to play out. Um, it's, it, it is currently playing out in the Stormlands. And I think it's just too juicy uh, not to follow that to its inevitable conclusion. So... To- more to come keep reading
1: <laughs> okay guys i'll give my thoughts i i've i've sort of um contained it in in one sentence dawn and blackfires are on a long game disaster arc so of course these two figureheads are going to get married You can bet your butts, I think, that that that's what's going to happen. Some people in the fandom disagree, so it'll be interesting. But my own view is that, you know, they're being set up to become an item. As as Brynden said earlier, you know, perhaps Aegon is thinking that he can have two wives. We don't know that. But, yeah, that seems perfectly feasible to me. And so let's move on to... I want to talk about the meaning of Aegon on the meta level. You know, what, what's his purpose in the story? And in A Clash of Kings, Danny consumes an hallucinogenic concoction called the Shade of the Evening. Uh, when she's at the House of the Undying in Carth, everyone knows this, she sees strange visions of the future and at one stage witnesses a cloth dragon on poles. And Danny later tells Jorah about that cloth dragon. Mummer's use them in their follies to give the heroes something to fight. So it's noted that Mummer's dragons serve this meta function. Perhaps this is George, with his, you know, giving us a little wink there. Many fans believe Aegon is the Mummer's dragon from these visions. Does this mean that Aegon exists? Purely as an obstacle for Danny when she comes to invade, does he serve any other purpose from that? I mean, is is it reductionist to claim that, that that's really what he's there for, Brendan B. Fish? That's a great
2: question, and, and I think like when you think when you think about like narrative and how writing goes, any secondary character is supposed to serve the story of a primary character, right? So, yes. But no, at the same time, it's always yes and no when it comes to George's work, when about whether these characters serve various purposes or not. Because I don't think that I, I think the young Griff is in like his primary narrative purpose in Danny's arc is to be the block for her. But at the same time, I think there's more to his story. I mean, I, I'll, I'll briefly talk about this. Like, there's there's a maybe this idea and i wrote this essay a long time ago about maybe young griff is a meta commentary on george's writing of the five-year gap of how george wanted to kind of paper over all the training aspects that would have led to brandon Arya, sansa john and danny learning how to rule and just like poof, like throw them out there in the narrative as being like ah now they're in their 20s and danny's been ruling marine for five years and john's been lord commander of the of the, of the night's watch for five years but you know that George decided that wasn't really effective storytelling. And so he ended up deciding to abandon the five-year gap and wanted to show the painstaking details of what it means for john to be the lord commander of the night's watch what it means for him to have to like gather up food and make loans with the iron bank and what it means for danny to have to learn how to plant trees and do these really difficult marriage alliances with his stars in loric in order to bring peace to marine and have these competing claims for a hand of marriage from quentin and his and dario no harris as well so this this is this is all really important writing and it just goes for writing advice for anyone who's reading these books like it's it's important to show the struggles of your characters moving forward but young griff doesn't have that right he's got about seven paragraphs in dance where he's like okay he's learning languages philosophy and history learning how to how to how to do sword fighting and leadership and he's gonna go right yeah does that feel satisfying to you no it doesn't feel satisfying to me and that's intentional i think on george's part so I think it could be something that George is doing on the meta side of things. And you know, we talked we talked about those uh, uh, we talked about this a little bit before, but he Young Griff really contrasts strongly with especially Danny and John because He's kind of really a striking parallel to Danny, but especially Jon Snow. You got Danny, who's actually been hunted, who knows what it's like to be hungry in reality. I mean, she was nearly starved to death on the Red Waste. She's had numerous attempts on at her life in a Game of Thrones, a Clash of Kings, and a Storm of Swords. Probably that's, that trade is going to continue throughout the, the narrative. And, you know, Jon, he's the Hidden Prince archetype who's been protected by the Edward Stark archetype. I mean, come on, like, in... <laughs> In The Lost Lord John Connington is literally wearing a wolfskin cloak, like Ned Stark, for for Pete's sake, like, we can see that George is playing with these archetypal roles here. But instead of grooming John to take the Iron Throne, Ned hid the boy away to protect him from the dangers of Robert. And that's quite the contrast for what John Connington and the others who have hidden the boy have done, because they're only doing that temporarily to give him a royal education, then reveal him dramatically in order to seize the Iron Throne. Jon Snow, as a member of the Night's Watch, has learned the hard tasks of ruling and has had various mentor figures who have imparted valuable lessons in ruling wisely, mercifully, and sacrificially. Ned Stark, Gior Marmont, Korn Halfhand, and Mance Rayder have shown him the contours of leadership and what it actually means to be a leader. And he's been demonstrating that leadership in his short tenure as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Additionally, John has learned how to prioritize the defense of the realm over political advantage. In the culmination of his arc in *A Storm of Swords*, when he accepts the Lord Commander position of the Lord Commander position of the Night's Watch, over his offer to become Lords John Stark of Winterfell and Warden of the North, we contrast this with Young Griff, who is being driven by his minders to seize the Iron Throne. Is there anything resembling an ideology behind taking the Iron Throne? Is Young Griff promising justice? Is he promising equality, help for the small folk, defense of the realm against the others? Not that I've seen. And that myopic focus on power at the expense of any reform measures is supposed to make us look sideways at young Griff as power for its own sake leads to terrible results. Look at freaking Joffrey or that terrorist Renly Baratheon. And this also like continues on the the, the themes that I was talking about before about dancing on the strings of our parents and our shadows on a wall. These characters like John Con and Varaz and, and Alira and others are looking at young Griff as a means of satiating their old wounds. Whether it's the Golden Company restoring a secret Blackfire to the Iron Throne to soothe the wound of having the throne stolen from Damon Blackfire, soothing wound that's 100 years old and that only two living people in Westeros know about Bloodraven and Water Frey, who are actually alive at the time when that maybe occurred. At least, Water Frey may have been alive during the first Blackfire Rebellion, but Bloodraven, who is sort of alive, I guess, at this point, was the one who's definitely alive then. Waterframe is alive at the second Blackfire Rebellion, as we find out in the Mystery Night. Or, you know, it's also like John Connington, too, who's projecting his desire to avenge Rhaegar to silence the bells of his shame over not defeating Robert. And all that leads to that theme I was mentioning earlier, about how we're all dancing on the strings of our fathers and our children will dance in our stead. And then finally, I think Young Griff serves as a kind of Quentin Martell figure for the Winds of Winter. Because Young Griff kind of reads like Quentin, someone who... Someone else is sent on an extremely dangerous mission to ameliorate a decade-old wound. I mean, was Quentin Martell a bad guy? I, I don't think so. But he's just a kid that's in way over his head and a kid that his father, Doran Martell, has projected his desire of vengeance onto. The end result? Quentin dies in Marine after a dragon roasts him. And, I, and I've always found some of Quentin's closing thoughts in A Dance of Dragons haunting. The dragons, Prince Quentin thought. Yes, we came for the dragons. He felt as though he might be sick. What am I doing here? Father, why? Four men dead in as many heartbeats, and for what? Fire and blood, Quentin whispered. Blood and fire. The blood was pooling at his feet, soaking into the brick floor. The fire was beyond those doors. And We're, we're probably never going to get a POV chapter from Young Griff where he'd think about that, but I can't imagine Young Griff seeing all the death and carnage and destruction he brings and not thinking similarly as, as, as Quentin Martel here. And I think the scale is much more than just four people dying and, and more that died right after that, that chapter in A Dance with Dragons. The scale of all that fire and blood is going to be enormous, especially when Danny arrives to dance with him in A Dream of Spring. It, it's because Jon Con failed Rhaegar, because the Golden Company failed the Blackfires. And I think that's really soulful writing to have all of that flowing from young Griff and from his storyline. So yes, he's obviously an obstacle for Danny, but he means so much more,
1: at least to this guy, me. I will definitely say that, you know, th- that I really enjoy John Connington and the the fact that he's sort of our eyes on Aegon really puts meaning into it beyond Aegon being a plot point. I, you know, it emotionally connects me to the, to these scenes and that's only going to grow. So... I mean, on one hand, like like Brendan said, yes, you can say, all right, he's there to serve that, you know, reduce it to, to that bracket. He's there to be an obstacle. But when you start becoming emotionally invested, it it doesn't feel like that. And it's up to George to continue and grow that in the Windsor Winter. I think he will. I think that I, I feel invested in this plot line, even though I know that it's going to end in disaster. Okay, so guys, on to our final question of the day that I'm going to ask you two. Aegon is a character brought in late on in the story. How far will George take Aegon's mission? Will the boy take King's Landing or die fighting Danny before he even gets the chance? Perhaps there are other eventualities that you guys can envision, and this is probably even perhaps beyond the winds of winter right this could be into the early pages of a dream of spring even so what do you think brindan beefish
2: yeah i uh, i agree with you it's probably gonna be in a dream of spring i think that the winds of winter is basically going to be aegon the victorious you know taking um winning his victories in the south and gaining the allegiance of various lords and and regions of westeros and you know, also picking up the Reachmen as well, Randall Tarly, Mathis Rowan, perhaps others as well, and other Stormlanders and disaffected people who are a little bit upset in, in the Crownlands with uh, with Cersei's rule of, of King's Landing. And then I imagine he's probably going to attack King's Landing, and I think it's going to be the centerpiece of, of the final chapter, of the final chapters that are either coming from Jon Con or Arianne's perspective. And I think he will likely take the city with the help of the Faith Militant. Uh, who will probably open the gates for them because, you know, we learn from Cersei's chapters in A Feast for Crows that the Faith Militant, the Warrior Sons have a couple hundred knights that are sitting inside King's Landing right now and more, or more are coming each and every day. So there's going to be a quite a large army of people who are not super happy with Cersei Lannister or with the Tyrells that are sitting in King's Landing. And I think if the High Sparrow ends up siding with Aegon, which I think he will, I imagine that they're going to be dispatched out to go uh, clean up some business and open some gates for for Aegon's army. And I think thereafter, I think people are gonna be pretty happy that Aegon won. Like, God, Cersei is gone. She's gone. The witch is dead, or she probably won't be dead, but she's gone. I don't have to deal with her anymore. She's not going to stop misrolling the city. Here's Aegon. He's awesome. He's handsome. He's a Targaryen. He's Rhaegar's son. And, you know, they're probably going to acclaim him. As the dragon, you know, Danny's vision from the Mummers' Dragon is yet to be fulfilled, but I do imagine that is something we're going to see from probably an Arianne chapter in *The Winds of Winter* of people hoisting Aegon up in in cloth banners, and you know that's going to be the the Mummers the Mummers' Dragon, so to speak. That the prophecy will be fulfilled, and then of course dragons that are sighted on the horizon. Danny lands in Dragonstone, and oh boy, that's going to be a real fucking shit show for that this kid. I, I don't think there's going to be any other way to look at young Griff's end state than through the prism of what happens in the house of the Undying, dying. Because the thing that pe- some people folks forget is that the Mummer's dragon vision is encased in the lie that Danny has to slay. One of the lies that she has to slay. And I think that ultimately means both killing young Griff as well as killing his claimed as being a dragon, so to speak.
3: Yeah, this is essentially how I see it as well, You know, that especially that Winds of Winter is going to be all about Aegon's ascendancy in Westeros. And uh, I want to just touch back on the historical inspiration I mentioned earlier. Perkin Warbe- Warbeck was a pretender to the English throne at the tail end of the Wars of the Roses. He was eventually defeated by Henry the Seventh and was at first allowed to live at court, which was a show of mercy that ultimately proved ill-advised because people continued to try to use him to front their rebellions and eventually henry had no choice but to execute him and i could see this being very much along the lines of what danny could be faced with because of the aforementioned you know he's her long-lost relative she could struggle with the idea that maybe she owes him some sort of mercy maybe she should just kind of give him a seat at the table or you know be like yeah that's my my little nephew over there and, and try to kind of keep him around. Maybe, you know, she, she's definitely going to be feeling the regrets and, and recriminations for all these deaths that are inevitably going to be laid at her door from Viserys to Drogo to Quentin and, and who knows who else. So I, I could see her really kind of not wanting to outright kill this boy. But I do think that in the end, like Henry the seventh with Perkin Warbeck. She's probably not going to have a choice. And that's, like you said, it's it's going to come down to looking at it through the prism of uh, the the things that we see in the House of the Undying and the uh, slaying that lie. She might not really want to go through all of those, you know, all those things, all all that fire that she has to pass through in order to get to her end state. Uh, But she probably won't have a choice.
1: So guys, I think this is a really intriguing question and such a major point whether Aegon is actually going to take King's Landing and how far it's going to go. I've gone back and forth in my mind many times whether he's going to take King's Landing and currently I think it's a no. Being on his way to do so before having to face off against Daenerys is a better fit I think. George has dropped heavy hints that there will be a second Dance of the Dragons, and we all strongly suspect Aegon is a part of the House of the Undying sequence we've talked about. If this pair square off, I don't think many people doubt who the victor is going to be there. Perhaps the real question is how Aegon will be defeated, and how the showdown is going to be set up. For example, could Aegon somehow come into possession of a dragon? And to what extent will he hurt Daenerys and her troops and her cause? Because George is certain to not make things too easy for Daenerys if she um, overcomes this obstacle. I think there has to be a, a literary cost to her. These are great questions, perhaps for another time. But one prediction I will commit to is that this will all happen away from King's Landing although to throw a bone out there I will also remind everyone that George has asserted that there could be several more people sat on the throne before we're done and I do concede that could be used in the argument that Aegon will take King's Landing. So only the Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring know the full truth and this is yet another plot line on top of all the others that We are excited to see play out. Okay, so, Brendan, thank you very much for joining us. You've been a wonderful guest. This is like your fourth or fifth time with us. You know, we love having you on. It's always a a great time and you bring some great analysis. I'd like you to tell us about your podcast called Not A Cast, how to find you and, you know, what's on your schedule at the moment. Well, so thank
2: you, uh, for both of you, for having me. It's a pleasure, as always. I'm basically like a third cast member of the Radio <laughs> Westeros
1: crew. At
3: this you point. earned that in the Battle of Fire episode. I've earned this.
2: God damn it! <laughs> Stannis Baratheon and the Battle of Fire and Aegon the Sixth and the live stream? No, I'm, I'm I'm teasing. I I love listening to you guys. I, I think it's um, you know, it's 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 a joy when you when your your episodes pop into my uh my feed, and I, I highly appreciate what what you both do for the fandom and keeping everyone invested in this series despite it being ten years since the last book was published in the in the main series and uh you know having all this hopefully by the time you're like in your fiftieth or sixtieth stream <laughs> of winter we'll have the winds of winter finally where you can uh you know put it up put it on there. But uh but as as boy or Lady Win Flash up there, yes. I'm a co-host on the on the Nauticast podcast with uh Emmett Booth, AKA poor Quentin. You can find us at not cast, asof.podbean.com. I don't normally say the, the, the website cause normally people are listening to it when we're, when I get to announce that. And then you can also, uh, find me on Twitter at Brennan fish. You can find me on Reddit at Brennan fish. You can find me at wars and politics, vice and fire to wordpress.com where I have a series of essays about Aegon, known as blood of the conqueror. It's about, it's about a 37, 38 part series. So, you know, you probably should print it out and you should put it in a big, like big ass binder and then you flip it through. And I will expect a book report afterwards from a, on that but um yeah so like i said at the beginning of the episode we're, we're just about finished with with a clash of kings now so we'll be uh doing that and uh you can catch us we, we do live streams every monday night at nine nine p.m East, edt is eastern standard time but i don't know what the d stands for is it do you know what it stands for daylight Dayla- daylight eastern daylight, daylight time
3: since we sprung ahead i think we're on edt edt all
2: right so yeah you can find us on, on monday nights at 9 p.m edt where we do our every single episode and uh yeah again pleasure as always to be joining you both uh, Matt, you look, you're looking more like the Christ every single time I see you on these streams.
1: Yes. No further comment. <laughs> <laughs> Heresy.
3: <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. Thanks Jeff for being here. We really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you all in the chat for being here. And, and, you know, if you're not in the chat, if you're just watching, if you're watching and not chatting, that's fine too. Uh, we appreciate you. Don't forget to like, and subscribe and, of course, join us for another episode or of the Streams of Winter in two weeks. No, I'm sorry. Ah, our our schedule has been condensed. It's one week. It's next Saturday. We're going to have Eliana from Girls Gone Canon here to talk about Ariane Martell. So we're continuing the Stormlands discussion. And, as well, we have got our next episode coming up very soon, which is uh, all about... The reach, as the Oak Boy mentioned earlier. So stay tuned for that. And uh, as I always do, I won't say hello and thank you to people in the future as well. Thank you for uh, joining in on the pre recorded video or podcast version. We appreciate you.
1: Yeah. Thanks to everyone for the support of the live streams. There will be more. And a special shout out to all the mods in the chat room who make this all possible, make sure everything's above board. Thanks to each and every one of our patrons who continue to support us. If you want to support us as a patron too, check out our Patreon campaign, which includes all manner of incentives including invites to our new Discord community. Wow, we're having so much fun. If you're a patron, you know, come on the Discord. We're we're having a great laugh every day. And of course, if you're a patron, you do also get uh, a staggered early release to our new episode of of The Reach. And that's very exciting, I think. So you can get shout outs and whatnot. Check us out on patreon.com. So thank you, guys.
3: Bye for now, everyone.